With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? Chris Kripasso here from CBSSports.com, and you are listening to another episode of the Prospect Podcast. As usual, I'm joined by my regular guest, Matthew Collar, and Matt, holy crap, did we have an insane Week 17 in the NFL. We had the Bills scoring 56 points, really 42 points on offense against the Dolphins' number one scoring defense in a game that mattered for the Dolphins. We had a crazy Brown-Steelers game that came down to a two-point conversion. And then we had your classic uh, Rams-Cardinals game with John Wolford against Chris Streveler. That's your classic game in the NFC West to decide <laughs> if either one of those teams were going to make it to the playoffs. And John Wolford outplayed Streveler. It was a strange game. There was a safety. It was 18-7 to at one point. Uh such a wild and crazy week 17. A lot of the games didn't really matter. And, and really forgetting a insane game at the end uh, in that four o'clock window, what happened again to the Houston Texans, they take the lead. They give up the lead. They take the lead. They give it up in the end. Ryan Tannehill hits AJ Brown uh, for a 50 plus yard game with like under a minute to go. And they, Doink the field goal in to win the AFC South and secure the number four seed. Such a really what's becoming a classic loss for the Houston Texans. All of that madness set up what I'm sure is going to be a really fascinating and compelling playoffs. But it also gave us, and at the prospect, maybe even more right up our alley, the one through 18 draft order. Uh, so we're going to break that down in this episode from pick one all the way through 18, obviously with that extra wild card team this year. It's, it's not one through 20. Uh, and just give our thoughts on player ranges for these, uh, for specific teams, where we think this could, you know, a quarterback could go. Could this be a run on offensive linemen? Um, but it's finally nice as a draft analyst to have a set in stone draft order. Yeah, no, that's true. And uh, hello, Philadelphia Eagles with the sixth overall pick that was not controversial at all how they ended up getting to the sixth overall pick by playing uh, Nate Sudfeld there at the end of the game instead of Jalen Hurts, which seemed to cause a couple of ripples that added on to all the other crazy stuff that happened. But a couple of teams hurt their draft status by winning. A couple of teams helped their draft status by losing. And Philadelphia jumped from the ninth pick to the sixth pick, which is, um, sorry to use the, a double negative, but not insignificant is the way that I would put it, um, going from nine to six, especially if they have any plans to try to trade up or if they want to trade down, which they seem to be a, a trade down type of team. But we'll get into that. But yes, we finally have it. We've got the, the start of the draft order. And after a season of watching, uh, you know, Jaguars versus Jets and who was going to be there. And then Houston um, helping the Miami Dolphins. So the Dolphins had a really tough day, but then Houston losing helped them now have the number three pick. And um, I mean, there's just storylines everywhere here. I mean, this is why the draft is so popular, of course, but I love this year in particular because of the number of quarterbacks and then the number of teams that could potentially need quarterbacks and then who's going to fill in around them who's going to try to trade up and down there's so much going on here with just the draft order Chris yeah definitely and we know or we at least think we know that the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to settle in on Trevor Lawrence at number one if they hire Urban Meyer if they hire Ryan Day with the Ohio State connections I think that leaves the door open for a lot of speculation about Justin Fields I'm fascinated with the second overall pick um, maybe even more so than that, because I think the NFL likes to have intrigue at the top spot. And, and, and we kind of had it with Kyler Murray, where they're going to really not pick him. Uh, but the Cardinals obviously ultimately did. I, I think for the most part, that pick is set in stone. 
Number two overall, it's so funny what's happened over the last, like, two weeks that Zach Wilson plays in his bowl game and is absolutely sensational against Central Florida, a team that scores a lot of points but really doesn't have much of a defense. And that was right after Justin Fields had a really bad performance in the Big Ten title game against Northwestern, completed less than 50% of his passes, no touchdowns, two interceptions. Uh, one was kind of a miscommunication. Another one was an underthrown pass and a great play by the Wildcats cornerback in the red zone or in the end zone. So that was really the Zach Wilson train that has been chugging along this season. It was moving all the way to the number two overall pick station. And then against Clemson in the Sugar Bowl, Justin Fields has as many or incompletions as touchdown six in the throttling of the Clemson Tigers. Uh, and now everyone's like, oh, my God, should the Jacksonville Jaguars pick Justin Fields? And are the Jets fans just smitten with the opportunity to pick either Fields or Wilson? So that, to me, it's the prime example of recency bias, bowl game bias, hmm. and just the craziness that can ensue, especially when you have like more than just one or two high-quality quarterback prospects and teams that need quarterbacks early in the draft. Yeah, I wouldn't expect anything but Trevor Lawrence to be the number one overall pick. But the number two overall pick is where it gets pretty fascinating because already you have some people rolling out, or I I should say uh, carefully dribbling out, like maybe they'll stay with Sam Darnold. And I think that's about as likely as it was with Arizona sticking with Josh Rosen. Like, yeah, yeah is it possible? Sure. But it would also be a really bad decision. Um, and could the Jets make a really bad decision? <laughs> yeah, they most certainly could. Uh, their recent history suggests that they make a lot of really bad decisions. I think it would be just about the worst thing they could do for their franchise to pass on either Zach Wilson or Justin Fields, who in my mind are very similar prospects, not from how exactly they play, but in terms of where you would project their ceiling. Like could both of these guys be NFL superstars? Uh, the answer in my mind is yes. And that's what you want to take there. Like you want to have an NFL superstar potential quarterback with a roster and cap space that you can build around that player and that you should have really been building for years if you're the Jets, but you know, they haven't, the cupboard is still kind of bare for, for uh, the Jets. It's sort of funny because I think that Trevor Lawrence steps into a much better spot if Jacksonville ultimately takes him. And I, I think that's another fun discussion about number one and two is which team uh, would you rather land on the Jets or Jacksonville? And I, I think the answer is clearly Jacksonville, even if they're not as relevant of a franchise, but if you're going to give me DJ Chark and, uh, you know, LaVisca Chenault to start with, I think I'm going to pick that over the Jets where I'm not really sure who their quarterback is throwing to right away. Yeah, definitely. I think they are – I think the Jaguars are on a faster track to being that worst-to-first team in their division. Um, do I think it's going to happen in 2021? Probably not. Uh, but certainly if you're Trevor Lawrence, you would much – you're much happier that you know that you're the odds on favor to be landing at number one overall and going to the Jacksonville Jaguars. And yeah, it, it was funny seeing a tweet from Adam Schefter over the weekend that like, I don't know if this was floated from an agent or what it was that the jets are going to make a big trade in the off season. And is it going to be Sam Darnold? You will hear me on this podcast over the next however many months, whenever we bring up the jets and Sam Darnold comes up, I am the least like hyped, pumped about Sam Darnold. That was the case when he came out of USC. I had him as a late first rounder, led the NCAA in turnovers that year. He makes some good anticipation throws here and there, can improvise to a certain degree. but And no, the situation was not good around him in New York for each of his first three seasons. He has mono last year to kind of curtail the beginning of his season. There's so many people, though, in the media, there's analysts that are still, like, gung-ho about how good Sam Darnold can be. I just don't see it. I don't think after that redshirt freshman season where he had Juju Smith-Schuster in a really quality environment around him at USC, which we talked about on the previous podcast, he's just been this kind of flashy quarterback. I compared him to Jameis Winston coming out that he can make ridiculous throws, but he's going to turn the ball over a lot, and he's done that. So, yeah, to your point, 
I, I think the Jets would be foolish, and I don't think they will ultimately pick uh, or, or ultimately stay with Sam Darnold and build around him. It needs to be Justin Fields or Zach Wilson. But now it's funny that, too, that they're going to have to really sit down and do so much due diligence on both quarterbacks. And it makes me think of, I wish that we were going to have fans of this draft and it was going to be in New York City because with Fields and Wilson both sitting there, we were guaranteed to hear extreme amount of boos regardless of who the Jets pick because you know that the Jets fan base is going to be split 50-50 on which quarterback they want, especially if Justin Fields plays well in the national title game against Alabama, that he will end his career with two quality bowl games. And Zach Wilson was nothing but sensational in basically every game he played in and tore it up in his bowl game as well. So I I wish we could see that um, and and hear that at Radio City Music Hall. Unfortunately, we won't. But right after them, number three overall, the gift that keeps on giving the entire year, making a trade with Bill O'Brien, leads to (laughs) – the Miami Dolphins getting the number three overall pick. So the AFC East with the Bills 13-3, and three, the number two seed, the Patriots, what are they going to do next uh, with Bill Belichick near the end of his career? And then you have two teams with top three selections. What do you think, Matt, about how the Dolphins handled Tua this year and what they sh- or how they should view him going into his second season? Is this a spot? where they should maybe think of that third quarterback, whether it be Fields or Wilson, even though they just picked Tua inside the top five last year. Well, there was another team that was in this very same position last year, and that was the football team, the Washington Sharks. And uh, the Sharks decided that they were all set. They didn't need to draft Tua or Justin Herbert. They were good. They've got Dwayne Haskins, and they're going to move forward with him. Uh, uh-oh, right? Because, you know, a lot of times you do find out pretty quickly. And as I was listening to you talk about Sam Darnold, I kept thinking about, you know, how many quarterbacks can I ever think of who were drafted high and then their teams moved on after their first contract and then those teams really regretted it? I can't think of too many examples where that happened. You have a guy in your building for long enough. You get to see him every single day in practice, and then you get to see you know, a couple seasons worth of games. Usually you know if something's there, even if he has started out pretty slowly right uh, into his career. Like Eli Manning started out his career pretty slowly. Well, that's okay. The Jets – or I'm sorry, the Giants stuck with him, and it worked out okay. Like – A lot of times, you know, within a year or two years, if someone's going to be able to cut it, and even if you don't, and you have a chance to draft another quarterback who has a higher ceiling or might be just more physically gifted, you should do that because you can always trade the other guy. And that is what I would be thinking with Tua is if you draft, let's say it ends up being Zach Wilson in this spot. If you draft Zach Wilson, A, you immediately have a player with better arm talent than Tua, and I don't even think it's close. So there's one thing in your favor. The other thing in your favor is that Tua will have at least shown enough in a handful of games for some other quarterback desperate team to say, okay, we'll give you a second round pick for him. Just like the Dolphins gave a second round pick for Josh Rosen. It's, it's a, almost a guarantee that someone gives a second round pick for Darnold and he's got what three or four years of not playing well. I mean, it's exactly. it really, it really shows you just the value of that position. The other thing is too, is that the Dolphins are a, probably a good spot for a quarterback and you might say they're a quarterback away from being a serious contender with a, a good defensive coach, save for week 17, and with a lot of good defensive players, some offensive pieces to build on. It's not great, but they could build on it. And you know what? If Tua and Zach Wilson are in training camp together and Tua is way better, that's okay. Then you have your franchise quarterback. Like That's the goal. It shouldn't be, well, we don't want to upset the apple cart here. It should be, how can we best put our our team in a position long-term to win. And that answer might be Zach Wilson or, or Justin Fields rather than, Hey, let's draft a receiver. Cause the receiver is going to make the difference for Tua. Well, you would appreciate the uh, comparison with EJ Manuel and, you know, Sammy Watkins was supposed to change EJ Manuel. Didn't happen. Usually doesn't. So if I were them, I would absolutely be thinking quarterback. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on, right on the head there, Matt. And it's, there's so many layers to this Tua thing, like the whole benching and then like Ryan Fitzpatrick starting and then Ryan Fitzpatrick coming in as the mm-hmm. closer. 
in that Raiders game. And then the following week, Brian Flores, or like the following day, Brian Flores coming out and saying, two was our starter. Like after Ryan Fitzpatrick was clearly the more efficient quarterback, I really think there were different people at different layers of the organization. Maybe the owner saying, two was our guy. We tanked for this guy. We had our eyes on him for two years. If he's healthy, we're playing him. I mean, we didn't get to have any controversy in week 17 because Ryan Fitzpatrick was placed on the COVID list. But that's an interesting uh, kind of perspective on this. Your point about the arm talent, and that was one of my key concerns about Tua Tungavailoa, is that watching him in the same draft class as Joe Burrow and certainly with Justin Herbert, the one like on-field knock that I wrote in terms of traits was like, Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert make throws every week that Tua just can't make. Yep. And not to totally bury him for what he did against the Bills' defense, and a lot of which was in the second half backups. He threw a couple interceptions that were pretty ugly. You could just tell like his arm is not there. And I think outside of maybe one or two games where he looked respectable, that was apparent in all those other games too, where whether it be a deep out from the far hash or – pushing the football down the field. It looks like it takes his entire body to get the ball 50 yards or to get that fastball through a tight window. So that certainly limits Tua's potential and just how good he can be. I know really the book on him was that he's surgically accurate and he knows where to go with the football. He, he has like a veteran's cerebral part of the game down, but really the returns on what he did. And you can look at the statistics. I know there were some pieces out today that looking at the grand scheme of things, statistically, it really wasn't that bad of a rookie season. Anyone watched yes. that Dolphins defense this year, it was dink and dunk yep. more than I've ever seen. Like it, it was more dink and dunk than the Steelers offense was when they had their little rough patch after starting 11 and 0. It was a screen or a drag route, or a check down. And there were some yards after the catch. Miles Gaskin made some plays. Deont or Devontae Parker is a good uh, number one wide receiver. But Tua, in terms of making high-quality throws, just wasn't there. The one other point that I think would really align with what you said about the Dolphins really should seriously consider picking a quarterback, they have that second yes. pick in the first round. So say, pick Justin Fields at number three. Say the Jets fall in love with Zach Wilson. Justin Fields has a much higher ceiling than Tua Tungavailoa. You can still pick, say, the best wide receiver on the board at number 18 overall and just say, all right, let's get this guy to help Tua in his first half of his second season. And if Tua, with this first-round pick wide receiver, they still have money to spend in free agency add some offensive linemen, maybe that picks on an offensive lineman. Maybe they deem that more important than a receiver. So you can still kind of build around Tua a little bit with that second first-round selection. And if I would say halfway through or two-thirds of the way through his second season, if you aren't seeing a very noticeable step forward that you saw with Josh Allen in his second season, you certainly saw with Patrick Mahomes in his second season, a lot of certainly uh, Deshaun Watson as well. If you're not seeing those flashes just about every week, then I really think that it's time to move on. And that would leave the Dolphins in a perfect scenario. Oh, we have the number three overall pick. Let's insert Justin Fields onto the field instead of it being Ryan Fitzpatrick or a journeyman stopgap bridge quarterback. So I, it's very funny how you mentioned that the Washington football team was speculated for a while to, maybe be in the Tua Tungavailoa market at number two. And then they're like, no, nope, we're going to go with Chase Young, who's been great. And they made the playoffs. They didn't win more games than they lost during the regular season. But rolling the dice on a quarterback when you're picking that early just ultimately makes more sense than any other position that you can pick. Yep, and I think that either Justin Fields or Zach Wilson beats out Tua probably in the first training camp because it will be so much more evident of their skills. And, and just a learning point off of Tua might be for us that, look, I mean, if a guy doesn't have a trump card skill, if he like I watched um, Jalen Hurts run away from defensive linemen like with one step and he's gone. Okay, well, that's his trump card. If things go wrong, that dude can run away from anybody. 
Um, and if it comes to, you know, arm strength with certain quarterbacks like Justin Herbert, uh, things are going wrong. You need a big play down the field. There's his huge arm. Well, what is that for, you know, someone like Tua? It was supposed to be accuracy, anticipation, but I mean, that really didn't show up um, this year. And it sort of looked at times like Danny Warfel for uh, older people, I guess, uh, or millennials, late millennials, um, where Danny Warfel absolutely demolished college football, won the Heisman for Florida way back in the day. And then he got to the NFL and it was just so clear that the arm wasn't strong enough. It's like, well, this is over before it started with Danny Warfel. And if you're going to be the guy who wins with anticipation and accuracy, that's your big thing. Um, it, it usually it takes like a veteran, like somebody who's been in the league for a long time to really succeed with that sort of stuff. Like the Drew Breeses and Tom Brady's just, there aren't many of them uh, left who can win that way. So that might be kind of a, what can we learn if Tua ends up being a bust? That would be, that would be the thing, but you know what I'll, I'll give uh, before we move on, I'll give the dolphins major credit for this. What a trade. What an unbelievably great trade. If you're a team that can't win the Super Bowl and you have an amazing player who's about to get a bazillion dollars, trade him because he's probably not worth as many wins above replacement as you think. Laramie Tunsil, nice player. What their team win? Four games? Okay, there you go. And that was with a great quarterback. They won four games. You know, there you go. And and look at the position the Dolphins are in. I'm not saying trade all great players. I'm saying if you're not in a position to compete for the Super Bowl that year, then trade guys who are about to get massive contracts. Yeah, we always hear that Brian Flores is, of course, off the Bill Belichick coaching tree. That was a Bill belichick yeah. decision for Brian Flores to make right away when he was the head coach. Like, oh, hey, we have this former top 10 or top 15 pick at, at left tackle. We're going to make him the highest paid tackle in the league. And he was like, no way let's get, and they got a King's ransom for Laramie Tunsil. And now they have this really advantageous situation where who knows what the, if the owners love Tua, if Brian Flores does who it is, but they will at least give themselves the opportunity to pick a quarterback if they want to. And I, I could really see what you said, picking Zach Wilson, he outplays Tua and they flip him for a second round pick to a team that loved Tua coming out of the draft. That would really be the best scenario. We'll see if this idea of the Dolphins moving away from Tua so quickly kind of picks up steam during the pre-draft process, but I really think that it should. Oh yeah, definitely. And um, you know, with the next team on the list, uh, Atlanta, I mean, I could see people calling me ridiculous for saying this, but I mean, if the top four teams went quarterback here, I don't even think it's a, it's a bad idea. We talked about how, you know, Trey Lance, it's hard to tell, uh, or actually that was on my show where you and I talked on purple insider about yeah. how Trey Lance might drop into the middle of the first round because it's just hard to figure out what Trey Lance actually is. But Atlanta is one of those teams that just makes so much sense for him. And with, the way that teams are thinking, the position that these teams are in, I know it's unprecedented for four quarterbacks to go in a row, but it, I, I don't think it's the craziest thing I've ever heard. There's so many ways that you know Atlanta could go. They could go the trade down route for a team that maybe wants to get one specific player. They could draft Penesul. They could take, you know, defense has been bad for them for a long time. So there's lots of options, but the biggest intrigue of this draft for me, Chris, is could four teams, actually four in a row, all take quarterbacks? Well, what I'll say on this, to your point, is that I would view Trey Lance as someone that, in a vacuum, should go probably in the middle or the back part of the first round. Mm -hmm. But I will never fault a team like that's in this situation that the Falcons are in. They're picking number four overall. Matt Ryan has been playing on this most player-friendly contract I've ever seen that he signed in 2018 for a while. He's getting up there nearing 40. Uh, that if they're like, hey, we kind of view Trey Lance as like the 15th best player in this draft, but we're going to pick him at number four overall. I, I, I wouldn't even categorize that as really a reach, especially if you have that mentorship built in, like I talked about uh, on your show that the Vikings could have with Kirk Cousins and yep. Trey Lance. That's the one position where if you fall in love with a quarterback and it's a few picks ahead of where you would ultimately value him on your team's big board, I'm fine with it. It would be kind of hard for the Falcons to trade away Matt Ryan. He's still due a ton of money if they um, release him before the June 1st deadline. Like they, there'll be uh, 
taking on a dead cap hit of like over $40 million. There is a $7.5 million roster bonus that's due in March, uh, but there's still so much money left on that contract. They really can't conceivably trade him without taking a gigantic dead cap hit until 2022. That could be a dark horse spot for that fourth quarterback in a row. Maybe like we have seen teams realize that we shouldn't pick running backs super early. Maybe (laughs) more teams are like, let's just keep picking quarterbacks. And it's a good class to do it. This is not uh, Christian Ponder and Blaine Gabbert and Jake Locker (laughs) in this draft class. That would be awesome to see. And I would really applaud the Falcons for saying, hey, look, Matt Ryan, a legend for this franchise, but let's try to move on and take a long-term view at the quarterback spot as they try to rebuild themselves into a contender. My go-to with that is the Mike Glennon, Ryan Nassib uh, debates that were heated leading up to that draft. Um, But yeah, this is the exact opposite. Now uh, the other directions they could go for me are, are all over the board. Um, If, if it's me running the team because I'm obsessed with offense, driving the success in the NFL and then trying to scheme enough defense to be good. I'm saying Jamar chase. I'm saying, you know, go get, a great weapon here to put along with Ridley and Julio Jones as he goes into the late part of his career. The best that Matt Ryan ever was, was running a Shanahan style, like play action offense with lots of weapons all over the field. And I think it was something that we didn't talk about that much that some of those weapons left or some of those weapons got hurt. And the offensive line was another part of this too. um, That wasn't as good after that. So there's also a case here for drafting offensive line. I, I think that there's so many holes, on Atlanta's roster that you could make a case for just about anything. But if you are going to say, no, we're sticking with Matt Ryan, old Matt Ryan, he is our guy going forward, then give him just more to work with. I mean, he's already got a lot, but give him more and see if that's uh, the route there because giving him less is probably not going to do it. Yeah, I think that's probably the right way to look at it if you're the Falcons. They do have a lot of moving parts. They're going to have a new coach, a new GM in place, so it'll really be interesting. I think. The Falcons at four, the Lions at seven seem like a similar teams to me in terms of the direction that they could go. They're going to have new coaches, new GMs. They have these older quarterbacks that have been like high end of the middle tier. At times they've looked elite, but they haven't really stayed in that elite group mm-hmm. for a prolonged period that both of those quarterbacks too, Matt Ryan and Matt Stafford are on these gigantic contracts that are a little restrictive for the rest of the team. It wouldn't be surprising. I think it's a little bit more likely that Matthew Stafford is playing on a new team next year than Matt Ryan. Hmm, Interesting. signaling for the future, if the Falcons go Trey Lance at four, I think that would be a lot of fun. And it would really signal um, not only them turning the page maybe in 2022 at the quarterback spot, but again, teams realizing how valuable quarterbacks are. And if you're having the opportunity to be so bad that you're picking so early, You might as well use it on the most, that pick on the most valuable position on the field. So let's say that happens and you're Cincinnati. I mean, you're throwing a parade, like, thank you, everyone in front of us, because now we get the best player in the NFL draft that is not a quarterback. And to me, that is Sewell. And I think that trade down is an option here, but I, I would also, if I'm them, I'm trying to get that franchise left tackle and never apologize for that. They have good weapons in Cincinnati already. They'll get Joe Mixon back. They've got good wide receivers, but their offensive line was a bleep show this year and they need to start rebuilding that. And what better spot? I, I know we're sort of doing like in a way, like a semi mock draft here. Um, yeah. But like, I, I love that scenario is happening. And if I'm Cincinnati, I'm just, I love who ended up in front of me if I'm Cincinnati because I've probably got a shot at uh, you know one of the two or three best players in the entire draft here. Yeah, when the Bengals beat the Steelers in that primetime game a few weeks ago, it was like following uh, it on Twitter. Like a lot of Bengals fans were like happy because they just despise the Steelers and they had lost a bunch of games in a row to them. Right. But then you saw a lot of Steeler Bengals fans like upset that they were kind of playing their way potentially out of that number three pick. And for the longest time, and this proves how quickly things change in terms of where we view specific prospects going for the longest time, it was Trevor Lawrence at one, regardless of who was picking him, Justin Fields at two, Penny Sewell at three to the Bengals. They win that game. They're out of it. 
oh no, they're going to pick outside the top five. They ultimately land at five. And I think it's still a reasonable expectation that they will be able to, to get him. And after Joe Burrow goes down with an injury this season and the fact that the Bengals don't really like to spend a lot in free agency right, right. Uh, to bring in, like you said in a previous podcast, which I think is, is a good way to do it, bringing in veteran offensive linemen who you know are going to just be good blockers that might be 27 or 28 years old, they can get Penny Sewell on a relatively cheaper contract at a very young age. One thing I will say um, before we kind of move down in kind of outside the top 10, um, I recently finished like the top 10 offensive tackle prospects and we'll probably do like a position by position rundown over the next couple months. And I, I watched Penny Sewell again. I watched him over the summer, really liked what I saw. And after watching him, after I watched a lot of the others, the Christian Darasaws, Rashawn Slater, Elijah Vera Tucker, Samuel Cosme, like there's a really uh, high amount. There's an abundance of quality offensive tackle prospects in this class. I wasn't as excited about Penny Sewell. Really? Wow. I wasn't. I'm surprised. I didn't. I was surprised watching it too, and that happens sometimes. And here's the reason why. He's only 20 years old, but his athleticism is through the roof. I I gave him the highest grade in terms of athleticism and footwork and balance of any of the offensive tackles. But he's not like a finished product yet, So, which I'm not surprised at that because he is so young and he was playing as a true freshman and then only as a true sophomore, and then he obviously opted out of this season. But at times he can lunge a little bit. His balance isn't perfect. Um, if the timing in his uh, kick slide isn't there, like if there's any delayed blitz, sometimes at the second level he gets a little over anxious. So it's like I didn't really know how to feel about it because it's like I'm not surprised because he's so young and he's so inexperienced. But trait-wise, he's the most exceptional offensive tackle prospect. And I do still think uh, he is one of the premier talents. I just wasn't as like Tristan Wirf's film was better. I thought Jonah Williams' film was better in terms of just the fundamentals of playing the game. But those are two players who were a lot more experienced and really came with that pro-ready label. I think Sewell actually has a higher ceiling than both of those players because of his size and his athleticism. So I don't want to like scare away Bengals fans from Penn A. Sewell. It would be great if they could pick him there. But it, I just had to put that into this podcast before I, I talk about that more at length later, that he's a little bit more traits, like he's a little bit more of a traits prospect than I expected. Like rewatching him, I, I was expecting to barely see anyone beat him whatsoever, but there were more reps than I expected or that I remembered seeing from Penny Sewell over the summer. You know, as you're saying that, I keep thinking, trade down, Bengals. Like, yeah. if so, if someone takes Sewell before you, um, and then you're saying there's other, you know, tackle prospects, and um, they're kind of similar or in the similar ballpark, or, I mean, just the fact that you don't have to take a tackle if you're Cincinnati, another team that has so many holes on the roster, they could take kind of whatever works for them. They need defense all over the field. I mean, they, they could use a lot of different things. So that to me is, Oh, hello, Denver. You're obsessed with Trey Lance or, I mean, Carolina could be another team that tries to trade up. Um, If things go sideways with Dak Prescott, Dallas Cowboys could be a team that, you know, is never shy about doing crazy stuff. There's a lot of potential options there, and I think that if you're a Cincinnati fan, I understand why you're annoyed at picking fifth and not third, but I think that they're – it's weird to talk about Cincinnati as, like, the most fascinating team in the NFL draft is the Bengals, but they're up there. They're, they're, They're way up there because of the sheer number of options that they have. Yeah, absolutely, and then just having Joe Burrow. I mean, we're talking about here on the first few days of with new coaches um, or new coaching gigs being available that man, look at how uh, alluring the uh, Los Angeles chargers job is because of Justin Herbert. Well, before Joe Burrow's injury, he was piecing together a really high quality rookie season for a quarterback playing behind arguably the worst offensive line in the NFL. So I, I do think uh, it is a prime spot to move down that I think long-term you really like the prospects of Penesul, and I think that would just be 
a safe selection. It would kind of remind me of when they picked Tyler Eifert uh, back in the day. Like there was no necessarily all pro upside, but you knew he was going to be a good tight end. I think Penny Sewell is going to be a very good left tackle, but in terms of building that franchise, maybe moving down even just a few spots and picking the second offensive tackle, getting maybe a second rounder and a fourth rounder in the process would probably be better for this team. Not again, and I said it on the previous podcast, your goal is to win the Super Bowl. It's not to go nine and seven and sneak right. into the wild card and lose in the first round. Trading down might actually be a better scenario for the Cincinnati Bengals. So these next couple of teams are not obvious draft a quarterback teams. I I don't know what Denver is going to do. Um, Denver should be making phone calls about trading for a quarterback because if uh, somebody else's quarterback or uh, trying to sign someone, maybe I don't even know. Like, is it, is it reasonable to even say Cam Newton here for Denver? Um, it'd be the complete opposite for Cam where he would have all these weapons as opposed to new England where he had none, but he also didn't look like a starting quarterback anymore this year. But these next, this next group of teams is kind of like, sort of set, but not really set at quarterback. Philadelphia with Jalen Hurts, they're not going to be drafting one, but that's a weird situation, and and we don't know what they're going to do going forward. Like you said about Detroit, it makes a lot of sense for them to trade Matt Stafford, but what new coach and GM are signing up for trading the only good player consistently that that franchise has had for a long time. Uh, Carolina's in, a, in an odd spot with Teddy. They have so many needs. Their defense was an atrocity this year. Um, but at the same time, Teddy Bridgewater is probably not your long-term franchise quarterback answer for Carolina. And then Denver and Dallas both have questions at their quarterback position as well. I mean, the, the way that this next group fell, it's all teams that are not a complete and utter train wreck and that makes it more interesting to me yeah from six which is philadelphia all the way i think to 12 san francisco that's where i believe if the falcons don't and i guess i would still label this as a surprise pick trey lance at four that i think trey lance will fall somewhere from six to 12 that Hmm. whether it be the lions after trading matthew stafford Carolina to let to groom him under Teddy Bridgewater. Maybe Denver's seen enough from Drew Locke. Uh, San Francisco, they still have Jimmy G. There's some speculation that with his, uh, or it's a lot easier for them to move on from Jimmy Garoppolo. I think Trey Lance and his athleticism and his arm strength would really cater to what Kyle Shanahan wants to do on offense. I, I think Trey Lance is more raw than a quarterback who should go this early, but Really, again, when you have the opportunity to pick a quarterback that has the upside to be a top five or a top seven quarterback, whether that be in a year or in three years, I think you ultimately have to pull the trigger on that. So I'm saying it here early January that Trey Lance will be picked somewhere between six and number 12 overall, which brings us to the Los Angeles Chargers at 13, right before your Minnesota Vikings go on the clock at 14. Yeah, and the question that I am just starting to ask here, this is kind of before um, we've really got a sense for the draft board after the combine, which is where I feel like everyone kind of has the sections where these players are going to get picked in the first round. But the question that's coming to my mind is, where are these receivers going to go? There are Mm -hmm. some freakishly great receivers in this draft, and we're talking about, like, okay, could it be four quarterbacks right away in the top? as you're saying, top 12, and then, all right, there's an offensive lineman that's going to be mixed in here, and then there's these receivers. Uh, Philadelphia clearly needs one. Detroit might lose their guys in free agency. They might need one and go that direction. Um, You know, Denver's kind of set there. Dallas is kind of set there. San Francisco might keep adding weapons and continue to go that route of, like, how much can we possibly put around our quarterback to to try and insulate him in the the Giants? You know, they've got good weapons at the moment, but – um, not not like a mega star wide receiver either. So I, I'm really fascinated by which teams are eyeing this really great receiver class there because I think the quarterbacks are just going to kind of push everybody down the board. Similarly, my question is, where is Kyle Pitts going to land? Mm, that, yeah, that's a great question. Mock, yeah, previous mock draft that I did last week, I do one a week for CBS Sports, um, which is a lot of fun. That's amazing. And I, I put it, 
I put him to the Eagles at six. I figure, okay, this guy is as hyped as a tight end prospect has been in a long time that fits the NFL, not this three down blocker. He's basically a big wide receiver, ultra productive. He's going to run probably in the four fours at the combine and jump 40 inches. And the Eagles have had kind of this divorce with Zach Ertz. Dallas Goddard is a good second tight end, but I don't know if he's the future. They have this young quarterback who's still pretty raw in Jalen Hurts. So I put Kyle Pitts from Florida to the Eagles at six. And we know how passionate Eagles fans are in Philly. (laughs) A bunch of tweets like, no way are the Eagles picking a tight end. It was almost like they hadn't ever watched Kyle Pitts. They're like, why would they pick a tight end? And I wanted to respond saying like, this is not just your everyday run-of-the-mill tight end who's right. going to average 10 yards per catch. But like you said, a lot of these teams, Philly, Detroit, Carolina is losing probably Curtis Samuel in free agency. The Giants, Golden Tate's getting up there in age. What's the uh, future in terms of long-term stability with Sterling Shepard? Could they pick Kyle Pitts? Uh, and with Hunter Henry being a free agent, could the – the Los Angeles Chargers also pick Kyle Pitts. Like beyond the, the top five, when a lot of quarterbacks are going to go, we'll see Penny Sewell from six all the way to your Vikings at 14. I think we're going to see a lot of offensive tackles and a lot of pass catchers. And to me, Kyle Pitts fits right in there with the top pass catchers because whether you call him a tight end or a wide receiver, he's a matchup nightmare. And I think he has a really good chance, especially after the combine, like you said, to go in the top half of the first round. Well, and, you know, I'm thinking about this this board, the way that it fell with the order, as in how many of these teams are going to draft a defensive player? I mean, if if Dallas gets it sorted out with the quarterback, they've got a pretty good chance at that. Um, but also their offensive Denver line, could. yeah, you know, Denver, right, Denver definitely could. Um, but aside from that, I mean, we might get only, what, one or two Defensive mm-hmm. players that are drafted yeah. in the top 12. I mean, there's, um, you know, some teams, Carolina especially, their defense is a, is a real mess. So if they're not going quarterback, um, if that doesn't work out in that way. But they also could use offensive line as well pretty badly. But, I, you know, I'm thinking about just the way that the league might be viewing defense that once upon a time you would have talked about you know, even having debates over defensive ends versus quarterbacks. And I guess we did that with Washington last year, but I think that's, you know, I I think this year is the year that everyone sort of finally went, you know what? There's certain things like throwing the ball all the time, like Buffalo does, uh, going for it on fourth down, going for two point conversions more often, like leaning into the things that we did on Madden forever, stacking up weapons all over the field. Uh, Dallas did it last year with CD Lamb. Like I, I think that those things are going to become more popular uh, in this year's draft. And it kind of aligns with the strengths and weaknesses of this draft class. That Patrick Sertan, the quarterback from Alabama, he will probably be the first corner off the board. After that, Caleb Farley from Virginia Tech opted out. I think he had a good chance to challenge Sertan uh, to be the first corner off the board. There's not a stud safety. Micah Parsons, uh, who I talked about him on the previous podcast, another opt-out, only a two-year starter. He's young, not a lot of plays in coverage. I think the linebacker spot. If you want to talk about a microcosm of that idea that, hey, maybe defense isn't really that valuable, let's just stack up on offense, then linebacker is probably the position that's the microcosm of that idea. Right. And defensive end, Quiddy Pay is there at Michigan, a freak. He only played four games. I don't know if he's like a slam dunk to go inside the top 10 or the top 15 even. So, yeah, I think we're going to see a top – just looking at the board, like you said, and just note, like running through the prospects in my head, the top prospects – we might see like 13 or 14 picks inside the top 20 or let's call it the, the lottery, the top 18 um, that will actually be on the offensive side of the ball, whether it be quarterbacks, offensive tackles, and wide receivers. And that is a sign of what is valuable in today's NFL. The three most valuable positions on the field will rightfully be prioritized by a lot of these teams early in the draft. So I know that you want to talk a little bit more just before we wrap up on Justin Fields and what he did. Um, So let me just give you one last thought kind of on the order from the Chargers to Miami. Um, Take 
Miami out of this. All these other teams, the Chargers, Minnesota, New England, Arizona, Vegas, I think they all have big problems and not enough to fix them. Like they don't have the top draft pick guy who's going to step in right away and be a star, but they all have more than one issue. They're not just, hey, draft this guy and you're all set. Um, Minnesota needs at least three defensive linemen probably, maybe you know two, uh, but probably three if you have rotational players. Their cornerbacks aren't set. The safety situation's up in the air. The offensive line is still up in the air. I mean, New England, their defense, what a disaster this year. They have hardly any weapons on the offensive side. And I think Arizona, and we'll see what happens with Isaiah Simmons, but if he doesn't hit for them, then they still have some pretty serious needs on defense and on, on their offensive line as well. Vegas is the worst defense in the NFL, I think, maybe other than the Lions. And so they need anybody in the entire earth who can pressure the quarterback. Um, and, and again, another team that just needs so much more to be reasonably decent uh, at the spots where they're weak, that um, th- this is the worst place to be, I feel like. Because obviously you're in the playoffs if you're not in this place, so you're happy with making the playoffs. And and maybe it's obvious to say 14th through 17th is the worst place to be. But when you have too much to fix and you can't really trade down and get a bunch of draft picks like you can if you're the top, I think they're all in a tough spot. Minnesota, New England, Arizona, Vegas. Yeah, and a lot of those are on the defensive side, like you mentioned. I think from 13 to 17 or 18, uh, those teams that you just laid out, they could use, especially New England uh, and maybe even Arizona, could use some more firepower on offense. I know, obviously, the Cardinals brought in Hopkins, but they're losing Larry Fitzgerald. Christian Kirk's been, eh. Andy Isabella hasn't really lived up to being a second-round pick. A lot of those teams need defensive help, and I think there'll be a lot of fan bases on draft night whether it be the Vikings or the Cardinals or the Raiders that will see their team pick kind of like a second tier defensive prospect early, just because they need a defensive end or they need like Christian Barmore, the number, the consensus number one interior defensive lineman. That's not going to get a lot of hype because we are going to talk so much on this podcast. And you're going to see so much on TV about how great of an offensive draft class this is. That's going to be like, Oh, we picked a corner. Like that's not Patrick Sertan. Like it will just be kind of a bummer. Although those are still good players, but I think in any other draft, the the prospects that ultimately are picked between 12 and 18 would go later in the first round or maybe even early in the second round, because these teams in that group really need to shore up their defenses. Yeah, and uh, defense is not something that's fixed with just that one player. It's not like, Mm -hmm. oh, you drafted a quarterback and now you're kind of all set there, or even one wide receiver that can change an offense. That's not always the case with one pass rusher or one corner. Um, Justin Fields in the national championship – or not – sorry, the the final four. um, Sugar Bowl. Sugar Bowl. uh, Amazing. Just absolutely incredible uh, to go along with the fact that he got injured and kept playing, which I know – um, and I, 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 I th- there's moral conflict there. And oh, I yeah. was among the people thinking as it was happening, please take him out of the game. Do not risk his future. What are you doing? And then when you hear the story after the game about shooting him up without even telling him what his injury is, like this Varsity is blues. this right. I know that came to mind. I mean, this is a case for anybody who's an NFL prospect and is, uh, you know, going to get drafted. Like leave, get get out of this environment, um, because college football really showed a lot of their, um, I guess, who they really are this year with the way that they treated some players, and I felt that way for Fields. That being said, in the NFL, you go through stuff, you play through injuries, you get your ass kicked, you get hit really hard, you play against good teams, you play against great quarterbacks, and you got to beat them. And I, I think that it does say a lot about Fields. I never doubted whether he was a top three prospect, but man, that was impressive. I think that's that's my takeaway is, well, you know, that's what NFL life is going to be like. Sometimes you're going to get killed by somebody and you got to get up and keep playing. Yeah, despite that hit, which was on a scramble that looked devastatingly painful, by the way. Yeah. And I, I don't know how he didn't break ribs, or maybe we'll find out after the national title game. Oh, yeah, he has to play Alabama, by the way. Uh, after <laughs> that national title game, we'll probably find out that he has some injury, internal injury that was just to his ribs or something. Beyond that, I think the game against Clemson was good for the long-term view of whichever team ultimately picks him. And the Jets are going to do their due 
due diligence, hopefully for the Dolphins' sake they do, maybe even the Falcons, of what Justin Fields can be behind a quality offensive line. That was the one concern Clemson had going into this game. They don't really have that Cleland Furrow, that Christian Wilkins, that stud defensive lineman or multiple stud defensive linemen that are going to be picked early. And Ohio State's offensive line was outstanding in the game. That only to have six incompletions with six touchdowns, he was in complete command. His accuracy to me, which has always been his probably his greatest strength after mm-hmm. how good of an arm he has, was really remarkable. That the first touchdown was an absolute laser. Uh, I think the Ohio State offensive game plan was really good. That beyond just knowing that they could win in the trenches, there was a lot of rolling pockets. The one touchdown was like a roll to the left and then throwback to the tight end across the field. Uh, but it was good to see, okay, this is what he could look like. Everything else was pretty much even. The the skill of the cornerbacks, the safeties, the linebackers, but Ohio State just protected really well. I think he's someone that hopefully will land with a team that's not going to give him a West Coast offensive coordinator that's going to say, we want to get the ball out in two seconds, and we're going to run a lot of horizontal routes. As we saw against Clemson, that 63-yard pass in the air to Chris Olave that was really, to me, the dagger in the third quarter, Mm -hmm. that was like a fitting point that Justin Fields needs to be in a vertical-based offense that's going to take a lot of shots. Whether they use play action or not, I don't think it matters. There was multiple throws, 20, 30, 40, and then that 65-yarder down the field that really illustrated how effortless it is for him to throw the football that hard and that long and that he can still have accuracy while doing that. So I I just hope that he gets with a team that is not going to try to pigeonhole him into this methodical quarterback that's hyper accurate to short levels of the field. Let him rip the football like he did against Clemson. And I'm really fascinated to see what he does against the ultimate defensive mastermind. I mean, Brent Venables, the Clemson defensive coordinator, has a sterling reputation, but what he does against Nick Saban uh, it, it was the most impressive performance that I've seen from a quarterback watching all these quarterbacks, uh, given that he got hurt, given that it was Clemson. They beat Ohio State last year. They they came back, and Justin Fields threw two interceptions in that game. It was the most impressive performance I've seen from any quarterback the entire college football season. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. And the, the only question I have with Fields is when things break down, how's he going to react? And this is something that you just can't really tell all the time with college quarterbacks. And by all the time, I mean almost ever. I mean, look at the Oklahoma guys. The offensive line university, they stand back there. Baker Mayfield had all day. Uh, Kyler Murray a lot of times had all day. And and you know, a lot of times these guys have draftable offensive linemen, the defensive linemen. There's like three or four in college football who ever pressure the quarterback consistently on a week-to-week basis. Um, even the guys that get drafted, you'll see them have like four sacks in a season and they'll get drafted on athleticism and, and hope and that kind of thing. Um, when you go to the NFL, you have guys who are 30 years old who make $20 million and who will pick up your tackle and throw him back into you. And then, by the way, you know Aaron Donald plays in this league too, and Grady Jarrett plays in this league too. So pressure happens super quick, and you see most quarterbacks in the NFL are getting the ball out in two and a half seconds or less. So how does he react? Because even just if you're an NFL quarterback – the, the floor of you getting pressured is on three out of 10 dropbacks. So that's like 10 out of 30 per game. What are you going to be able to do with those? Are you going to melt down and throw interceptions? Are you going to be able to find ways um, to work around them with your athleticism or, or whatever it might be? There were some times in other games where I thought Fields uh, was not sharp when he got pressured like that. And in this game against Clemson, he just wasn't. He just wasn't pressured at all. And, and you know, like – a lot of NFL quarterbacks can stand back there if they're not pressured at all and throw the ball anywhere they want to throw it because they're in the NFL. It's a lot of times, you know, how you deal not just with pressure as in being pressured, but also like, you know, unique looks and pressures and adjusting protections and then looking to the defense and, and you know, different um, you know coverages that you're going to have to react to. I thought at times in other games he struggled with that, and uh, I'm very interested to see how it looks against Bama. Yeah, to my point that I don't want Justin Fields to get into this dink and dunk West Coast offense, 
it was kind of a larger point that I was trying to make that I can say now uh, that I, I don't think that he's this hyper fast processor that would work well in that system. Mm-hmm. And like you said, there have been games, Indiana, Northwestern, uh, that when things weren't there on his first or his second read, he kind of didn't know what to do. And he kind of just leaned on his athleticism, which I think he is a high caliber athlete for the quarterback position. But a lot of those times you want the quarterback to be able to either get outside the pocket, keep his eyes up, make a play downfield, or just drift inside the pocket and maybe get to that backside tight end or that third read or the check down. And I think it takes him a split second longer than even someone like Zach Wilson. I think Zach Wilson can be that point guard and dink and dunk and get it out quick and understand where coverage is dictating he needs to go with the football. I think Justin Fields, that's why I want him in a vertical-based offense that's giving him a half-field read and saying, play action fake, look up, you mm-hmm. can either throw it to the post or you can throw it to the go route. You need to watch the safety. If the safety runs toward the middle of the field, throw the go route down the sideline. And even if you have to wait an extra second and you have to throw it 60 yards in the air, we trust that you can do that. That's why I want him in that type of system because – Beyond just the arm strength ability, I I don't know if he's there quite yet in terms of processing and quickly getting through uh, his reads. And that's why, like you said, when things break down, um, I I, I don't really know if I can trust him in those situations yet um, beyond running with the football. So yes, that will be the one concern that a lot of people will have with Justin Fields, including myself. But for those six or seven out of 10 of his dropbacks that where he's kept clean, I want to be able to hit as big of a play as possible because I'm not sure what's going to happen when he is pressured on those two or three other times he drops back. Yeah, it's a great point. Kind of put him under that Justin Herbert sort of umbrella of like, this guy can be a complete franchise changer with his deep ball. Let him throw it deep. I mean, it's funny what's old is new, right? I mean, you go back to the 70s, you have like Terry Bradshaw just going nuts, throwing 50, 60-yard bombs all the time. And then we went to a lot of, oh, everyone should be like Peyton Manning and throw quick passes and run everything at the line of scrimmage. And now we're back to like, hey, Hey, wait, who can throw it the farthest and the hardest again? And it's, it's kind of funny how that comes around. But I actually, I love the idea of Justin Fields in a play action and deep shot offense. Uh, we usually think of those rollout offenses as the Kirk Cousins or the um, Jared Goffs or something. But if you have an athlete with a great arm doing that, I, I just, I think that that's where you're bootlegging the guy out. He can take off, he can throw underneath, or he can, you know, heave it deep. I love that idea for him. I, I don't I don't necessarily love the idea of him standing at the line of scrimmage trying to make a ton of checks and pick a bunch of defenses yeah, apart no. and things like that. Yep. Yeah, and that leads me to my comparison that just dawned on me while I was rewatching that Clemson Ohio State game. And this is it's it's not perfect because there there comes with a few caveats. He reminds me of not as natural of a playmaker, but actually more talented version of Deshaun Watson. That hmm. watching him this year, he had a great individual season for the Texans. Um, this year and in any of his first three or four seasons, he's not someone that's like the most accurate quarterback in the league. And there are even deep shots that he takes that are that sail over the head of whether it be Will Fuller or back at, or even last year or in previous seasons of DeAndre Hopkins but he was always a high yards per attempt quarterback because he could misfire or he could take a lot of sacks. And I think, I think Watson is a better improviser, but he will hit those big plates because he's so good with his accuracy down the field. He's ultra aggressive. He's willing to trust his arm down the field. And I think that is where Justin Fields is. Also Deshaun Watson had one extra season as a starting quarterback at Clemson, three years of full starting experience, Justin Fields is going to enter the draft with only two. So he kind of reminds me of maybe like the year before Deshaun Watson came out. That's where I kind of view Justin Fields. I think his arm might be a tick stronger. And I think you could use him a little more in the designed run game than you want for Watson. Watson's a little twitchier, a little bit more uh, impressive with his change of direction than Justin Fields and can do some crazy things like with his body completely off balance, throwing it across the middle of the field. Um, I, I don't know if Fields is there yet, but I think if you are drafting Justin Fields, you want to put him 
not necessarily with the personnel, with the bad offensive line and trade away your best uh, wide receiver, but you want him to look like and hope he looks like within reason, like Deshaun Watson after his, you know, first half of the season when he got injured and then into year two. I think they're similar quarterbacks. They're never going to lead the league in accuracy percentage or lead it in passes thrown from zero to 10 yards down the field. They're just that boom quarterback down the field that's going to try to hit splash plays, not just one or two times a game, but like five to ten times every game. And it is fascinating how the league has gone from like Bill Walsh, West Coast offense, into like (laughs) air raid, throw a deep, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen. Yeah, I guess I had two different comparisons come to mind of current quarterbacks, and both of them feel super weird, so I I don't love either one of them. Uh, One would be – Kyler Murray with the the deep bombs and the success that, you know, he has with the deep throws and stuff. Um, And then, you know, the other one, this, this one might sound weird, but I almost think like Ryan Tannehill in a way, because he does have so much success throwing the ball down the field and he is a, you know, former wide receiver and a good athlete, but not an off schedule guy. And, and I think that like both Kyler Murray and Ryan Tannehill are great deep throwers and really good athletes who are not off schedule guys. And I, and I think the same thing of um, Justin Fields, like he's not a Russell Wilson who's going to run all over the place and then be like, Oh, now I'll do something absolutely preposterous. So um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see also because of the stylistic differences between him and Zach Wilson, um, just who wants to pick who at the top. All right. That'll do it for us today. Remember before we go to, subscribe rate and review to matt's podcast purple insider daily podcast minnesota vikings the best daily minnesota vikings podcast on the internet i hope there's more than a few so i can really be (laughs) categorizing yours as the best we're number Um, one there are yeah there's a lot of quality vikings content out there but matt's is at the top and also subscribe rate and review to the prospect podcast for matthew collar i'm chris trapasso thank you for listening